Great to see you this morning. Uh, glad to be back with you. My family and I were on vacation last week, and we missed you. So excited to be back uh, together. This morning we'll be in Mark 12, so you could turn with me there. And if there are any parents who have kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching, that's offered now. So you could take them out to the back. I think I said 12. Uh, we did 12. We're in 13, Mark 13. If you need a Bible, um, underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one, a blue Bible, and you can turn to page 495 in those Bibles. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, today we come to what is, uh, without a doubt, the most difficult chapter to interpret in the book of Mark. In fact, it's among the entire Bible's most controversial texts. Very, very, very few of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible lack broad interpretive, cons uh, 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 interpretive consensus across the people of God. But this is one of those very unique sections that uh, the church has struggled to fully grasp. Um, I make no claim to have solved every question, uh, but I do pray we would be well served nonetheless by what is in this text for us uh, today. One of the great benefits to uh, the way we choose to go about preaching here in that we normally start at a book of the Bible and just work our way all the way through it, one of the benefits of that is you don't get the, the sort of pet theological predilections of the pastor, but you get the whole counsel of God's Word. And so it sort of forces us to not jump from chapter 12 to chapter 14, uh, but to really consider what's here, um, even when it's a hard uh, passage. Ordinarily, we would spend one Sunday on a, a single story or a, a single teaching, but because of all the issues around this chapter, we'll spend two weeks in it. And so my plan for us is that um, I'd like to read all of chapter 13 and then make some comments that relate to the whole chapter and then spend any remaining time we have on the first 13 verses. And then, Lord willing, next week we look at the second half of the chapter. And so, um, with that in mind, uh, would you look with me starting in verse 1. And as he, that's Jesus, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat opposite uh, the Mount of Olives, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and Andrew and John asked him privately, "Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished?" And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, meaning I'm the Messiah. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. 
But these are but the beginnings of birth pains. So be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever's given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is the easy part of the chapter you've heard. But when you see the abominable snowman standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on his housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the people in Phoenix said, Amen. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. But then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lessons. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, 
the preacher's biggest concern. Stay awake. Let's ask for God's help. Father, this is a complicated passage. It feels, in a sense, far from our experience. And so would you help us now to not only understand, but to believe and to apply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the exception of verse 1, Mark chapter 13 is entirely a speech by Jesus. It is, in fact, the longest speech in the book of Mark. This tells us that Mark understood it to be of singular importance because out of all the things Jesus said, this is the one he chose to give us at such length. Whatever difficulty we might feel in our quest to understand it, let's not miss that for Jesus and for Mark, this speech matters a great deal. It must be worth the work of trying to understand it because he didn't give us in all the chapters in Mark any other teachings of Jesus in this length. It's included in our Bibles not to leave us scratching our heads and throwing up our arms in frustration, but to guide us into how to live in a harsh world. Now, there are a variety across the church of Jesus Christ. There are a variety of perspectives on what's going on in this chapter. They can't all be right because they often contradict each other. The text means something. We're just struggling to try and understand it. One interpretation of Mark 13 states that everything Jesus says in this chapter is yet to be fulfilled. It's still in the future. Christians who hold that view believe the passage will only be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus, when he comes back and brings about the end of the world as we know it. Another interpretation asserts exactly the opposite. Proponents of this position teach that everything Jesus talked about in Mark 13 was future for the disciples, but now for us, it lies in the past. Christians who hold that view believe that everything this text teaches was about an event that happened in A.D. 70. Now, I believe, and again, I want to come at this humbly and say, um, I think this is right, but people have really, really struggled, me included, with this passage. I think both of those interpretations fail to properly understand Mark 13 on its own terms. Hearing the disciples as they would have heard it. When we open our Bibles for in-depth study, be it individually or perhaps uh, as a family or in a gospel community or with somebody you're discipling, or even what we do here on a Sunday morning, we must recognize that when we open the Scriptures, we don't come as blank slates. We come with all kinds of ideas, questions, beliefs, and struggles. And we naturally 
look at the text through the lens of our own times and experiences. Yet, if we want to truly hear from God in His Word, if we want to hear His voice, not our own, and understand its life-giving power for us today, then we've got to hear the Bible on its own terms before we can grasp its significance for us today. We must take the text on its terms rather than reading our own day on top of it. Yesterday, as I was finishing up in my preparation, um, just out of curiosity, I went to YouTube, clicked on search bar, and just simply put in the words, Mark 13. Mark 13. One of the first videos that came up, I mean, it was early enough that it filled the initial screen, was uh, an individual who had made a uh, video two weeks ago, and the graphic on the front of the video was a picture where in the background were these fiery-looking mountains, and then in the foreground was the Pope and Biden looking at each other. <laughs> and between those words was the date, November 6th, it's coming. Apparently, I clicked on it, and then it was a 19-minute video explaining that the upcoming meeting between uh, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and the President of these United States is the fulfillment of Mark chapter 13. Now, we can laugh at that, and frankly, it is funny. However, nearly 300,000 people have watched that video in the last two weeks. YouTube, the publishing world, quote-unquote Christian television is full of that kind of garbage. And it is doing precisely what Jesus says in Mark 13 not to do. We must take the text on its terms rather than reading ours on top of it. Now, let me give you one example. And I give you this one because it's especially controversial, but I think it makes the point well. Let your eyes glance back over verse 10. Our assumption when reading verse 10 is that the event described there hasn't happened because we know today that there are unreached, what's called unreached people groups. These are people among whom there is uh, no reproducible church. There, there is not enough gospel witness, maybe no gospel witness at all. Now, we know today with modern technology and modern travel that there are still places like that. And make no mistake, that ought to be of immense concern to us as Christians. It's one of the reasons we have a goal of being a church that helps other churches, because it takes the whole body of Christ to reach the world. But is that what verse 10 is talking about? I don't think so. Because if we hear that verse with the ears of the disciples, what Jesus meant is 
the gospel's got to go throughout the Roman Empire. And if you read Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul in two places in Colossians 1 says that the gospel had gone out into the whole world. In other words, the gospel has gone to the known inhabited Roman world. We've got to be careful not to read our understanding on top of the passage. Mark 13 reverberates with echoes of the Old Testament. It is filled with quotations and allusions the disciples would have been familiar with because they knew their Bible better than we know our Bibles. And so we need to hear what they heard if we hope to grasp what's here for us. When we do, and we have a very little knowledge added to that of history, which that's about all I have. In high school, when they were, we were being taught history, I was throwing spit wads. I don't know all that much. I'm not kidding. I believe when we ascertain a little bit of understanding of Mark 13, a little bit of understanding of history, then what we'll find is that much of what's written in this chapter has in fact been fulfilled. And some of it, we are waiting until Jesus returns. That is, let me say it a different way. We can say together already to much of what's in Mark 13 and not yet to some of it. Now, before we dive in and start talking about the specifics, one particular burden I have for us is that we wouldn't miss the forest for the trees. We can argue about little details ad infinitum, but let's not miss the big idea. What, what's the burden of Mark 13? I think it's that Jesus was aiming for faith and obedience among his followers, his apostles specifically, in the context of the massive upheaval and deep suffering they were about to enter into. He was preparing them for things in their own lives. Jesus is after the vigilance of his followers, not charts and dates and calculations in weird YouTube videos with the Pope staring at Biden. That people would use present day today, wars, rumors of wars, false messiahs, and an increase in persecution, that they would use those things to predict the end of the world is imminent, is doing precisely what Jesus said not to do. And so I just want to encourage you right from the outset, in a way, frankly, that you may even misunderstand me as being mean. I would encourage you, unless it's for comic relief, don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Because it's doing precisely what Jesus says not to do. Jesus' primary objective was to persuade his followers to prepare for life in this world, not to tell them when this world was going to end. Now, I do believe there are aspects of this chapter that speak about the return of Jesus Christ. We'll get to those next week. But much of it offers predictive prophecy that was ahead for the apostles within their own lifetime. It was fulfilled. 
Now, would you let your eyes glance back over the first clause of verse 1? It says, and as he came out of the temple. That's important to remind ourselves of where we are, brothers and sisters. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, he heard the shouts of praise and hosanna from the crowds. And he made his way immediately to the temple. And now for multiple days in a row, Jesus has been consumed with activity at the temple. Everything we've talked about the last five Sundays has been there or headed there. Now think back with me, if you would, especially to chapter 11, when Jesus entered the temple and he found it, um, he, he found that people had essentially turned the, the court of the Gentiles, that entrance into the temple, they had turned it into a circus. It was like the county fair. And he, in holy anger, turned over the tables, turned over the chairs, ran off the people. Ever since then, that moment, Jesus has been having sharp conversations with religious leaders about the hollowness of religion at that time. Mark 13 serves as the cherry on top, as the conclusion to Mark 11 and 12. And I think it is the inevitable conclusion because temple worship had become a farce and the vast majority of religious leaders at the time were hypocrites. Despite Jesus' clear warnings, they didn't repent. And so consequently, it all had to come down in divine judgment. That's what Jesus says is going to happen in verse 2. You see it? Verse 2 is the natural divine conclusion to Mark chapter 11 and 12. But the disciples were yet to understand all of that. They were still thinking very differently about their time. How do we know that? Well, that's the second half of verse 1. As Jesus left the temple never to return again, the disciples are looking around at the building, oblivious to the deeper meaning and significance of the events that were happening. And one of them said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. Now, don't get me wrong. That temple was splendid. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was one of the most astonishing. I mean, we could put it in a a, a single hand, the most significant buildings erected at this time in the world. This would be among them. The temple and its surroundings at this point made up somewhere between a fourth and a sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. Uh, imagine a building so big, let's just split the middle and say a fifth. It comprised one significant structure comprised a fifth of Tempe. Even with the campus as big as it is across the street, it's not, it's not even close to that. 
the stones which formed the base of the temple would be impossible for a small or medium-sized crane to move in our own day. They were enormous. It was covered in marble and gold. It was magnificent structure. At this point, it had been under construction for 50 years and still wasn't quite finished. So what the disciples said, whoever that was, he was right. It was astonishing as a structure. And yet to that, Jesus says in verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Church, in A.D. 33, Jesus foretold the climactic and cataclysmic destruction of the entire temple. That would have been unimaginable to the disciples. So much so that they couldn't imagine a world without the temple. Do you see that? Jesus says one thing's going to happen. This temple is going to get wiped out. And they respond, a small group of them, well, tell us when these things, plural, are going to take place. Meaning, in their minds, for the temple to get wiped out means the very end of the world. It was inconceivable to them that the very center of religious life would get destroyed. These first two verses, that the temple and also Jerusalem would be destroyed, turned out to be exactly right. After many skirmishes in which the Jews were hoping for independence from Rome, in the year 66 AD, history tells us, Rome began to besiege Israel. The emperor had had enough. He sent his army to fight against Israel, and major war ensued. And in AD 70, General Titus, who was the son of the then emperor, led Rome to wipe out Jerusalem. The city was decimated, the temple was burned to the ground, and stone by stone, it was leveled until nothing was left. Josephus, a Jewish historian, and later Eusebius, a church historian, together these two sources tell us that in that stretch of time, it's estimated that 1,100,000 Jews were killed and 100,000 were sold into slavery. And the only people in a large scale that got out were the Christians, who in response to Mark 13, fled. The fact that Jesus got all that right is incredible. Now that's verses 1 and 2. And frankly, there's not much debate about those verses. They're clear, and even secular, quote-unquote, history confirms it. And friends, 
Do you recognize that since that moment, 70 AD, despite the very best effort of the Jews, the temple has never, ever, ever been rebuilt? In fact, today, where the temple was sits the second most important site to Muslims. The Dome of the Rock, a mosque, is built there. It is incredible that Jesus predicted that decades before it happened. Now, if we think about this in terms of moving beyond that first paragraph into the second and third, let's think about the second paragraph. Jesus left the temple and led his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem, down into a small valley called the Kidron Valley, up the other side onto what's called the Mount of Olives. These are all places that still exist. You can look them up. You can see pictures. Uh, Several people in the room have been there. It's not a large area. It's pretty small, actually. The Mount of Olives sits about 1,000 feet in elevation higher than the city of Jerusalem. And so the disciples head up it and then ask Jesus a question, and Jesus responds. And that's the rest of Mark 13. Now, its location... I'm lingering on because there's something biblically significant about it. Do you remember I told you this entire chapter's sort of, I didn't say it this way, but let me try now. If you take Mark 13 and it's a wet towel and you wring it, what pours out is Old Testament allusions. It's full of them. That Jesus stopped here to have this conversation was not happenstance. The temple, you see, was the center of religious life for the Jews and for any Gentiles who worshipped God. It's where sacrifices were made, and therefore it's where forgiveness of sin was ordinarily experienced by the average person following God. It's where God followers gathered for worship. It's where the priests did their most important work. It's where annual festivals were held in which whole families would travel for days and days and days to reach this place and thereby remember together among the people of God all the great things God had done in their past. And most importantly, this is the place uniquely on the face of the planet where God said, I will make my presence known. I will dwell here. That's what ultimately made this significant. And yet Jesus said it would be decimated, wiped out. The question we ought to ask that, frankly, isn't a concern to us today in many cases is why? Why would a place of such enormous importance spiritually in the Old Testament get absolutely plastered into oblivion. For time's sake, let me give you just two reasons. Number one, on one level, the temple would be destroyed because the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus would render it irrelevant. Church, praise God that we live on this side of the cross because today when we sin, we need not head to the temple, buy an animal, and offer it as a sacrifice. 
I would be absolutely broke. All my credit cards would be maxed out if I still had to do that. Do you recognize, believer, the gift that in a moment, wherever you are, that you recognize, God, I have failed you, that you simply need to repent of that to Him. And in that moment, He says, I am just, full of love, overflowing with mercy. You are in Christ, and therefore you are forgiven. What a tremendous privilege it is to live today. Praise God that God no longer dwells merely in a building, but now in Christ, He dwells rightly by the Spirit inside of us. Praise God that this morning, as tens of thousands of churches gather, that God's not present in one of them. He's present in all true churches as His people assemble. There are so many things we take for granted today that pre-Mark 13, pre-death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus would have brought any follower of Jesus Christ to tears just considering even the possibility that that might become true. So on one level, the temple simply dated. It had to go because it was no longer needed. But on another level, this is the second reason, the raising, R-A-Z-I-N-G, the raising of the temple was a profound act of judgment by God. He's wiping it out because they had made a mockery of it. And this isn't the first time that that happened. In fact, that very thing had happened in the past. Centuries before, God gave a vision to a man named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel saw the glory, the presence of God leaving the temple. Here's a a verse from Ezekiel. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, meaning the house of God. Ezekiel foresaw that God would depart from his temple. The next passage I'll show you explains it in even more detail. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, I hope, at least for maybe one or two people, there's a little ding, 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 light bulb going on. What mountain is east of the city of Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives. And so Ezekiel foresaw a day where that would happen, and it did historically. The temple had already been wiped out once, but it was rebuilt And yet Jesus seems to be self-consciously choosing to stop on the Mount of Olives to speak to his disciples about the end of the temple. Because when he left the temple in verse 1, the presence and glory of God left the temple never again to return. 
Jesus is showing that a brand new era is about to unfold in which God wouldn't fill a building with his glory. He'd fill a people with his presence. That's awesome. All of this would have been inconceivable to the disciples, completely unthinkable. When Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, they thought the end of the world was coming, which is why they asked the questions they asked in verse 4. Tell us then, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, to this question, the rest of that paragraph then makes a single point. Don't be deceived. All manner of chaos between the year 33 and the year 70 is going to ensue. Don't be deceived. There were, things were about to get so bad in Jerusalem and around the Roman Empire that people would be constantly claiming the end of the world was near, and some would wrongly declare themselves to be Jesus in the second coming. I promise I'm not making this up. Last week, as my family was out of town on vacation, we were at the beach, seven, eight, nine, ten, I'm not sure how many times, in different parts of town, we saw a guy with a large cross and across the cross beam were written these words, I am Jesus. And they had a little, um, whatever you call these, those little V things that say I'm going to add a word. Maybe it didn't work the first time, so he had to add something. He added the word literally. I am literally Jesus. I know people like Maui, but I didn't know Jesus would care, and that'd be the spot he would hang. Now, I asked somebody who lived there, who's a believer, if he knows anything about that guy, and he knew his name. I guess Jesus is called Andrew, and he used to do normal kind of outreach, telling people about Jesus. But then at some point, he decided he is Jesus. And so every day, all day, that's what he does. He holds a cross up that says, I am literally Jesus. Now, do I need to be concerned? Uh-oh. Maybe that really is Jesus. Maybe that is literally Jesus. Should that be a cause of alarm? Friends, Jesus told his apostles, between when I'm telling you this and the temple's knocked down, a whole bunch of people are going to tell you, I'm Jesus, come back. And the fact that that's still happening today is astonishing. That man is not Jesus. Anyone you ever meet who claims to be Jesus is not Jesus unless you see him coming 
in clouds, and the whole world is enraptured in a singular event. It's not Jesus. Friends, don't be led astray. Be careful what you watch on YouTube, what podcasts you listen to, what books you read, what blogs you believe. There's enormous amount of garbage clogging up our spiritual understanding. As part of your walk with Jesus Christ, do you regularly tell yourself, today I need to be on guard that I be not deceived? And in our church membership, if you've covenanted and made a commitment here to walk with Jesus with a particular group of people, is it ever on your mind I bear a responsibility to help my brothers and sisters not be deceived. I hope so. Church, may we be not led astray by false teachers and false teaching. In a day where conspiracy theories are thriving and people are believing all kinds of ridiculousness, may we be a humble gracious, courageous people of truth. That's the second paragraph. Now, how about the last? Well, in addition to telling the disciples, don't be led astray. Instead, would you be prepared for coming persecution? That's what verses 9 to 13 are about. In fact, we could summarize the the whole first 13 verses like this. Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. So avoid deceivers and endure through persecution. Beloved, persecution, Jesus is saying, does not mean the end has come. Rather, it is to be the occasion for witness to all the nations. Persecution is it, 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 it's through hardship and suffering and trial that the gospel best spreads. Persecution is the prime context for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Why? Because if there are people who believe something enough to be willing to suffer for it, it at least raises the question, why? And the question, why, then provides a wonderful opportunity for the people of God to say, because I've got something in Jesus that's even better. So there's a very real sense in which persecution is good for the church. And yet the burden of this paragraph is that persecution brings great risk as well. Beloved, when the waters of your Christian life get choppy, are you tempted to bail on Jesus? When when you understand that obedience to Jesus' teachings around issues such as homosexuality and transgenderism, when you recognize that holding to what the Bible says might actually cost you friends, a good grade, a job, your reputation, are you willing to accept those losses and their losses for Jesus' sake? 
Are you willing to risk ridicule by sharing the gospel with a friend? Are you prepared to be misunderstood, criticized, maybe even run off by your parents for choosing to prioritize church and Christ over career? Friends, these are real, active issues. If you're from a country where there is formal persecution by the government, will you live for Christ there like you're living for Him here? Jesus' words couldn't be clearer. Avoid deceivers and endure persecution. Jesus called the apostles to endure. He promised them that those who stand up under difficulty and persecution will enjoy an endless, peace-filled salvation. Other scriptures tell us light momentary trial produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Church history tells us that of these apostles, all of them except one were martyred for their faith. And the one that wasn't killed spent many, many, many years in exile. Suffering is temporary. Salvation is eternal. In God's strength, endure. That's what that second paragraph says. So Mark 13, 1 to 13. Church, I believe that those verses were given explicitly to the apostles and that today we look back on them and they have been fulfilled. And therefore, it's natural for us to ask, well, then what use was the last 38 minutes? I would submit to you today that these verses do in fact teach us some things by way of application. Let me try to draw out three of them and then just encourage you this week when you meet with each other to think about what are other things, what other implications and applications of these verses. But for time's sake, let me just give you three. Number one, Jesus is worthy of awe and praise. Jesus is worthy of awe and praise for lots of reasons, but two in these verses. Number one, just consider his knowledge, his foreknowledge. Jesus predicted what no one else would have even imagined. And precisely it happened. That's incredible. That's amazing. And if Jesus could predict the unthinkable, if Jesus knew exactly what was to take place, then friends, whatever is ahead this week, this month, this year for you, he already knows. And he will walk with you. Christian, his foreknowledge is a cause, a reason for praise. Number two, consider the significance of his accomplishment in bringing about the end for the need for the temple. We don't need to go to Jerusalem in order to experience 
the sacrifice of an animal for the forgiveness of sin. We have that in Christ. This is an incredible time to know Jesus. He is worthy of awe and praise. I know it's Sunday morning, but can you say, wow, can you show a little emotion? This is incredible news. Jesus is worthy of awe and praise. Number two, don't live life looking for signs. Pay attention to the road signs, yes. But I'm talking about don't watch the news and then try to correlate. Oh, the Pope is going to meet with Biden. Dun, dun, dun. Mark 13, the end of the world is here. Jesus said these words precisely so we wouldn't do that. We would do well to heed his words and stop listening to all the garbage that's out there. Jesus wants us to focus on being faithful and bearing up under hardship as we share Christ with others. He doesn't want us endlessly bound up in all these predictions that don't come true anyway. When I was a kid, there was a guy named Harold Camping who often made predictions about Jesus' return. And what do you know? He had to keep revising his date. (laughs) Friends, there's a lot of well-meaning believers who misunderstand. We don't need to worry about predicting the hour of his return. We need to enjoy living for him. And he'll come back whenever he darn well pleases. As the Father is going to say one day, this is the day. Number three, if Jesus faced persecution, if all of his early disciples faced persecution, then we ought to have realistic expectations about how we will be received. Friend, that old song, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, is a lie. You will have some days with Jesus in your future that don't taste sweet. They taste bitter. They are hard. Opposition to Christianity is on the rise, not the decline in these United States. And we are headed toward looking very much like Western Europe. Will we stand up humbly, lovingly, graciously, and courageously for Christ when it actually costs something? Friends, we can. Because the glory of God isn't in a building 
in Jerusalem. The very resurrection power of God resides in you, Christian. Therefore, however hard whatever may come may be, we can endure, for He is with us, in us, and we have each other to remind each other of those truths. Amen? Those are just a few of the ways I think this text applies. Let's have realistic expectations. Life with Christ will not always be easy. Be not deceived and endure persecution. Let's pray. Would you stand? Lord, these are difficult verses, and I thank you that in your sweet kindness, I get to be a part of a church where people will listen to texts like this, where they will stay awake. I pray this morning that you would take your word and apply it to the hearers, Christian, non-Christian, discouraged, encouraged, aware of all this discussion that does happen around the world or oblivious to it, would you please take everything I've said that is of you and use it, Father, in such a way that we might be lifted up and prepared to live life this week in a way that's pleasing to you by means. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.